Hey. Hey. Everything worked. Haha. <laughs> does it sound better when I'm like this, or does it sound better when it's further away from my face? Uh, it sounds better further away. Okay, that makes sense. I don't know how to take that off or change that, but that's fine. I can leave it like this. Yeah, I'm trying to find a pair of earbuds. Yeah, good call. I'm going to I'm going to do the same. They have the ones that come with my phone have the um the inline mic and everything. So I was like, "Eh, mine mine do too, but um I, we're just going to deal with it." Awesome. I mean, this doesn't sound worst considerably, does it? No, it sounds pretty good. Okay, awesome. Yeah, um, Amuse, or Amuse, Anchor is really good about optimizing uh, the microphone, whereas like on phone calls, you know, you have that um, artificial static added in the calls to keep people from thinking that you're hanging up on them. Yeah. So, as Anchor points out, your phone mic is actually not bad. It's actually pretty good if it's used correctly, you know. Exactly. I think they have like a live uh, noise reducer in there as well. So, how are how are things, man? How how was your weekend? Weekend's been pretty good. I have worked both days of the week, but um, I've been working on a little project on the side here at home. Uh, I don't know if you know what a hackintosh is, but it's basically I... when you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You. Get PC hardware that you assemble yourself to run the Mac operating system. And it mm-hmm. takes a little bit of tinkering, but it's free. with As long as you have the parts, it's free. And it's pretty entertaining. So I've been working on that. How about you? Well, I was going – can I ask you a question about that real quick, actually? Go ahead. Do you what, – what Mac OS – what's the latest Mac OS you can uh, install through that, through a Hackintosh? Um, you can install really whatever is the latest. So I oh, think okay. we're up to Mojave right now. But um, wow. I have Sierra running on it for compatibility reasons because I'm using a really old graphics card in there. Sure. So it's not like it's waiting for an emulator of the next Zelda game to come out and it takes three years. No, thank God. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> I'll, ne- I'll never play Breath of the Wild. I'll, at this rate, I'll never get to. TFW, no breath of the wild. Exactly. Man, I was watching my friend Donald play that game the other day, and it looks like so much fun, but I don't know if it's just me, but I really think the graphics are overexposed. Uh, are you like talking it's, about it's, the, uh, the remake or the regular one? Like um, it, was on the, it was on the Switch. Let's see. I'm just going to pull up an image right now. It looked almost like whitewashed, you know. Nintendo Switch. Sorry, don't mind my keyboard here. Is it a mechanical keyboard? Yes. I will never mind. I will never mind that. Awesome. I respect it. Pull one up. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. It looks like it has like a 10% opacity uh, white just layer overlay yeah. over the graphics. Which is, I guess, fine on the smallest screen as the Switch, the handheld. If you're playing that on your TV, which he was, it's like this. this looks bad. This looks really bad. I hate to break it to you, my man, but this looks trash. Yeah, this looks like a Taylor Swift music video post-2013. Oof. Where you just don't do any color correction on the video, and instead you just leave everything bland. Yep. You know what I mean? You just, yep, you slap the camera on the tripod, shoot it in one take, and upload it. 
Yeah. It's like the whole reason it looks so flat initially is so you can do whatever you want with the lighting and the shadows and the color in post. If you don't do anything in post, it just looks, it's just going to look flat. And that's a style now, but it's so weird that it's a style because it's the laziest option, which, you know, that's a whole other conversation. So, yeah. Um, I think the other thing is uh, a lot of people buy computer monitors, especially, which is what most people edit on with, um, with that kind of, they call it the best buy TV effect, which is basically the colors are a (laughs) little bit oversaturated to get you to look at it more. Like, um, right. If you go to a demo TV in Best Buy, they have that saturation cranked up as high as it'll go. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. And so it's, uh, not exactly as high as it'll go, but they have it extra and it makes the image look more vivid at the cost of color accuracy. So people will look at it on their screen and say, Hey, this looks fine already. When in reality, if you calibrate your display to the, uh, Adobe sRGB zone or just regular, um, I think it's just regular sRGB. Um, you know, it's going to look a lot flatter and then you can grade from there and then it'll look like something. Hmm. I've always, I I feel like I am am not in a position to criticize like omitting color correction or doing it in a, in a kind of a like slap on fashion uh, too much because I feel like a lot of people, myself included, kind of get into a zone, like a comfort zone with color correction, where it's like, okay, everything I make is going to be just a little green and a little dark, or a little pink and a little light. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think... Which that's... Let's go ahead. I think that can be uh, more of a trademark than a, than a f- the series of flaws, because yeah, no, no video is ever going to be perfect, especially with a medium like video, where perfect is so subjective. So I think that's a good thing. I think it's definitely helpful if you're building a brand, like all my stuff is pink. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so I, I think that can be really helpful, but I've also noticed in the past, um, like transferring it from one project to another without meaning to where it's not so much of a trademark as much as it is a limitation, but as long as you can recognize when it becomes that and then transition and still find a way to make your mark, then you're probably in a good place. Exactly. As long as you're not like overly at the same time, overly imitating another style, right? You would kind of want to make it your own. Like it's easy to take the, the Lumetri presets on Premiere Pro and just slap them on everything, have everything. Yeah. And I think a good. Why um, does your vlog look that way? I think a good example of, um, you know, you can't just copy someone else's style is you have thousands of YouTubers now who are uploading daily vlogs with the exact camera gear that uh, Casey Neistat mm-hmm. uses. I hate to name drop the most overhyped uh, YouTube vlogger, although I do love his videos. But, um, you know, you have all these kids going out there and buying DJI Mavics and $7,000 cameras and Gorillapods and everything. But their videos... The gorilla, the Gorillapods, are, it's such a meme at this point, I feel oh, like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have one. I have one for my phone. I have one too. I have one for my GoPro. Yep, I bought the meme. I, you can't not buy the meme. It's like I'm all it's in. like a pop socket. Yeah. At this point. I have my Yeah, we're all in on the I meme. Have my Harambe pod clamped firmly around my phone. <laughs> um, but I just wear mine on my belly button at this point. Uh, it's a good way of doing it. Yeah, it keeps the lint out, you know. Yeah, and you can get if you turn it around, you can get a good up the nose view for a live stream of your daily life. Yeah, exactly. I think that 
I, I, I see what you mean, but it's funny because there are entire YouTube channels dedicated to teaching you how to vlog. And most of what they do has nothing to do with technique, nothing about like learning to be a better public speaker or engaging with your audience. It's just what gear are the most popular vloggers using and let me use that. Exactly. You know, which is fine because you don't want to emphasize too much on like what the top vloggers are doing in terms of style and relating to the audience because you want to be able to do your own thing. But there are definitely general skills that you could cover that they're not covering. Exactly. And I, I feel like gear almost like to for 99% of people, gear doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I, I think something that I struggled with first when I started making YouTube videos, what started making YouTube videos like, eight years ago, right? But when I started making YouTube videos consistently for the first time and I was doing Let's Plays, I focused so much on gear. And eventually, after a couple of months, I realized that I was using that as an excuse to not create content. I was like, oh, I need to wait until I have the perfect gear. And it's like, I have a camera in my pocket, you know? Exactly. Like, why put it off? People are there for the content. And if, and if the quality is great, then that, that's great. Make it as good as you can. But if the content is good, people will stick around so that, and, and hopefully provide so that you can get better gear eventually, right? Or at least they'll wait until you can do it yourself. Exactly. Let me um, – give me just one second. I have, a, okay. I have a visitor real quick. I'll be right back. Okay. I'm putting the headset down. All right. Absolutely, man. Thank you. My apologies. Hey, it's all good. I noticed you don't have a, a profile picture on your uh, on your anchor. Yeah. Account. Just logged in. I actually I have the website right in front of me, so I'm trying to get into my iCloud, and then maybe I can upload one. Oh, are, are, while are, we're talking. Are you on your phone? I'm or on my you phone. On... So then, okay. I, have... I, I wasn't sure if you could do it on a desktop. That's why I asked. Yeah, I have a. Um... I pulled up the site because I googled it just in case. I was like, "Hmm, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can do it off my computer with my cute little microphone and everything." And wouldn't you know it, yeah. I can. You can. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I didn't know you could do that. I'm probably won't do that, but it's nice to know that it's an option. Exactly. If I want to do up the professionalism a little bit, because there are so many programs now that it's just like. You, the only option is to use the mobile app. There is no desktop, which is so strange to me sometimes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like pretty interesting. It is. It's it's strange. Like I understand a lot of it has to do with people around their phones. They have them with them all the time. You can be very mobile, very nomadic with a phone. Um, but I still spend probably more time on my laptop than I do on my phone. I might be you know a black sheep when it comes to that for a lot of people, but that's that's what I do, you know. And I and I I. Feel I'm annoyed almost when I have to stand at my computer on my phone because I can't do the thing I'm trying to do on my computer. Exactly. And I, I think... So weird. I think this kind of uh, forced movement towards mobile apps is almost emblematic of um, just the, the movement of society as a whole. You know, everybody hated that commercial, the Apple commercial with that little, little androgynous child who said, uh, what's a computer while looking up from their iPad? And... Uh, you know, as yeah. much as you can say, like, oh, that's so hokey, that's so cheesy, so many kids these days, they don't have a laptop. They have a phone and a tablet, and those run all the things they need. You can apply for jobs right. from your phone. 
And while it might not be the most optimized thing, I think that kind of push towards mobile everything is emblematic of where society's already going. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would agree. And I think that people are always going to be willing to compromise over certain things, right? So there are plenty of things that are way more convenient to do on my phone. There are just enough things that are more convenient to do on my phone that I'm still going to do the inconvenient things on there sometimes because I'm already on it, you know? And, and eventually, if enough people continue to do the inconvenient thing, someone will some innovator will come along and make a more convenient way of doing it. At least that's the idea. That's how it's gone for the past 10 years, right? Exactly. I do think that's emblematic of where society is headed. I think that um, like mobile technology has a massive impact on the increase in uh, nomadicism, both ge- geographically and socially, right? We can, we can talk about that more in a minute. I actually, uh, I don't think I've introduced this at all. Go ahead. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and do that. Hey, guys, welcome to the first episode of the Insert My Name podcast. Um, this is my buddy Max Russell. Uh, his major is in computer science. He's a close friend of mine. We've had a lot of great conversations about philosophy, psychology, uh, mythology a little bit. And it's, it's been fun. And I've been, I've been wanting to do this specifically with him for a while. I think that you guys will enjoy listening to this if you are interested in any of the three subjects previously listed or technology because we're both, we're both a little nerdy in that domain, though Max probably uh, reaches out a bit further than I do. Thanks. What heck of an introduction there. Thanks, man. I was just rambling. I'm glad it came over well. Hang on, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. All right. When, uh, when you've hydrated there, um, introduce yourself. I mean, I'm sure people, people are tuning in just as much for you. Sure. Hey, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, so uh, this is Joshua, of course. I mean, you know, the name's there, but um, this is going to be my podcast. This is going to be a pretty consistent thing. I'm hoping to upload close to on a weekly basis, just talking about um, talking with interesting people about interesting things. Let's put it that way, right? Um, If you want to, if you enjoy this podcast or if you've enjoyed it so far, and you want to check out more of my content, I have a YouTube channel. I have a mailing list, all this stuff. The best thing to do, if you want to check out anything I'm doing, is to go to jeshuadnoel.com. Uh, Noel is spelled like Noel, but pronounced wrong. And Jeshua is like Joshua, but spelled wrong. Um, jeshuadnoel.com. There you can find resources for my mailing list, for my blog, for uh, the books I've written slash published in the YouTube channel. Everything is there. It's very comprehensive. Um, there's all kinds of neat goodies there for you. If you go to the website and you join the mailing list, um, you'll actually get a free copy of my second book, Rattling Hi-Hats, the Hip Hop Philosophy Handbook, um, which is an accompaniment to a podcast I did in the past discussing philosophical trends in hip hop today and in the past, and then also in the discographies of certain artists like Lil Yachty, Tyler, the creator, and Lil Pump, um, which is just a lot of fun to talk about. And it was a lot of fun to work on and write. And if you go that route, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you enjoy this podcast as well. Was that good? That is perfect. Awesome. Sweet. So um, I feel like the topic we decided to, to, to discuss today, like that was a nice like segue that you produced there talking about uh, how emblematic mobile technology is of um, the current trends in like at least social and cultural norms in the U S and in probably the Western world in general. Um, but I think the, the best way to start, I guess, is to 
start with the big question and break it down from there just because it's such an all-encompassing question that we're going to be discussing and there's there's so many directions we can take it and there are definitely some things i want to touch on and, and technology is is one of the major with your background being in computer science um but guys what we're going to be talking about today is the philosophical and mythological future period uh, of the western world but of the world in general um i feel like we'll mostly discuss um, the developed world as far as the U.S., Western Europe, uh, and we will discuss developing countries and the quote-unquote Eastern world, although that's so 1950s of me to say, um, just because that's where, that's where a lot of the focus is right now. It's where the media's focus is, it's where most of our knowledge is at and where most of our interests lie. Um, just a little disclaimer there. But yeah, I think, I think the best thing to do is just jump in with the big question. I mean, Max, we, feel free to take this however you want to. Where right. do you think the, the developed West at large is headed philosophically uh, within, within our lifetime, I would say? I don't think we can branch too far out, but within our lifetime, within the next couple of decades, I mean, just what are some trends that, that you see slash have seen? Well, I think a good place to start is, um, you know, let's see where, w- with what has already happened in recent years, what philosophical movement or movements does that match up to the most and then logically based on the facts and what that school of thought says it's about where will that go and personally now i may be i may be speaking off the cuff here and i'm definitely speaking from my own personal experience sure but it's my understanding that you know we're getting a little bit more hedonistic and not all of it is in a bad way, and not all of it is in a good way either. I would say, um, you know, a lot of people regard, um, you know, our current president, Donald Trump, 45th president of the United States, as uh, sort of a reality TV star president. Mm-hmm. Um, they say he's, you know, emblematic of this, that, and the other. I'm sure if you're listening to this in the current year um, or during any year of his presidency, I'm sure you've heard it all before. Um, But it's interesting because we have, aside from the hedonism of, oh, he says the thing that I like, let me vote for him. We also have hedonism on the other side. We have um, the anti-fascist movement of people who are, oh, this thing makes me angry. I will literally physically destroy it. We have, um, we just have a a lot of things like that of people seeking, maybe not even the instant gratification, but the shortest route to success, sure. the, so, the sort of might makes right approach. Right. So in this context, you would be, define hedonism as the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of negative emotions, basically. Exactly. Right. Sort of um, without thinking about the consequences, just diving headfirst into what do I want? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that there are plenty of people like who support Donald Trump, but also people who criticize him uh, based on the hedonistic tendencies they, they see in him and have seen in him in the past. But I think that that definitely strikes a chord with a lot of Americans. I mean, one of the things I wanted to cover is I, I would agree that, that it seems like hedonism is on the rise, but it may just be that it seems that way. I, 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 it's, it almost seems like um, more like a mask has been removed, right? Because you talk to people about co- American culture from the, oh, the early 1900s up until the 60s and then really up until the 90s, um, especially the American culture was very evangelical. And yes, but no, because 
um, we kind of had this idea that it was, but it was just a matter of what was popular. It wasn't like um, we're all interested in what's best for the community and for the country. It's just it's popular to think that way and look that way. I think culture in America right now, society is less about appearances. We're a lot. It's a lot more raw. It's grittier. It's more real. A lot of that has to do with the decentralization of media, Twitter and Facebook Live and things like that. One might um, even say anchor. Anchor, yeah, absolutely, yeah. The fact the fact that we can have these conversations publicly in, in a in a in a more meaningful way than if we were to just gather in a in a city hall or something, right? Um, because this can reach anyone. So, I think that's just an important question to pose: Is hedonism actually on the rise? It doesn't seem that way because people, like so many people, have always just pursued happiness. Um, it's just the idea of what will produce that happiness has changed, right? People who pursued the American dream in the 1900s were doing it because they thought it would make them happy. That's true. And I, I think, um, you know, in that sense, America is founded on that life, liberty, mm. and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and I think really what distinguishes hedonism from wanting to live a good, pleasurable life is pretty much just the disregard for the consequences and the effect on other people. Right. And so, but I, I think you have a really strong point there in as much as it may just seem that way, because especially given that um, every older generation, the stereotypical quote is kids these days or back in my day. And every generation th- seems to think that it gets progressively worse. And when I was a kid and I heard my grandparents say that, I thought to myself, that's dumb. I'll, I'll never have a problem with the younger generation. And already I'm 18 years old. I'm about to turn 19. And already I see, you know, younger kids on Twitter, younger kids in real life. And not as often because I don't go outside very much. Um, but I, I see the activities and the trends among today's even younger crowd and i think to myself god that is awful do you think that's speeding up i it might be speeding up it might just be that um when 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 kids are i'm trying to think of a, a succinct way to put this that doesn't use you know so many words that the point gets lost we in today's era are more exposed to each other's thoughts, whatever, whatever another wants to put on the internet, we can come across it. And so Mm -hmm. as opposed to before where you had to have a sit down conversation with one of the younger generation or work with them for an extended period of time or teach them or something like that, when you had to do those things to more get a sense for get get a finger on the pulse of the younger generation um, right nowadays you can just by going online or going on facebook or reading the news and sure so, it, it was that if you didn't have kids or know people who just completely unaware of what those social and cultural trends and norms might be whereas now all you have to do is have a twitter account and you're exposed to all of it yeah at the same time so everyone's aware well, I think that that's, that's interesting that you bring that up. I think that's fascinating because I have um, said for a while now that American culture 
uh, in American media tends to cater to teenagers more than anyone else. And I don't think that's always been the case. I think American uh, media at least used to cater to like um, the average like mom and dad in their 30s or 40s in, in the home. Right. And now it caters specifically to teenagers all the time. But a lot of that just might have to do with exposure because it's so fascinating and so fast paced, um, like what adolescent culture looks like, whereas the idea of, you know, a homemaker and a breadwinner, that's not interesting at all. I think that this is also, how do I put this? I think this is what we're seeing right now, as far as people using Twitter, like, like a diary and, and today's youth revolting as much as they are, not to say that youth in the past in America hasn't been rebellious. There's this rebellious spirit in all of America's youth. It's, it's just a, the cultural norm really to be a rebellious teenager. Um, but a lot of it is that we we came in onto the internet at a very young age, probably. How old were you when you first logged onto the internet? Oh, Lord, I, I don't even remember, to be honest with you. I've just known I it don't as either. a presence. Exactly. So I, I can probably say that I was like six or seven, which is just wild to think about. But when we first got onto the internet, and even people who are a little bit older than us first got onto the internet, it was you were anonymous. You know, you could say and do whatever you wanted to, and people didn't know who you were. And that spirit, that like, frontiersman spirit of the internet has been carried on with the younger generation but now the older generations are logging on as well and they're used to having to adhere to social norms everywhere they go but their own house and even then um many believing that you have to adhere to the social norms in your house otherwise your household will fall apart and maybe it will you know you don't know it depends on who you're living with and what your family's like but I think we're seeing a clash of those right now, right? Between people who like, like wine moms on Facebook, um, who <laughs> they don't have to be wine moms, but moms on Facebook who are adhering to social norms. And then their kids who have this like pioneer spirit on the internet where they still feel like they're anonymous and invincible, which kids get that way. Anyways, teenagers have that tendency and the internet only amplifies that even though now your face and name is almost always attached to it, or at least your IP address. Yeah. And does that make sense? Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. And I, I, re- I really, I like the, um, the verb they use there. It accelerates things. Um, I subscribe to a lot of Facebook pages about, um, accelerationism in society and just, uh, could you describe that a little bit for me? Certainly they're, they're memes. So they've, the they've listeners. taken the concept a little bit too far in a satirical endeavor Um, But basically, the idea is, if there is a trend that is not harmful to society, accelerate it. So, um, you know, oh, more kids are getting into the STEM fields, accelerate it. Uh, More kids Mm. want to blah, 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 you know, write a book. They want to learn how to code. Uh, People want to travel more, accelerate it to just facilitate progress like it doesn't matter just just keep facilitating it there's no need so, in this movement size there's no need to hold back and say oh well what about this it's like free market capitalism on Adderall, exactly basically understandable but people are going to be left behind in in that system and that's going to happen regardless but as much as we can as much as we can slow things down to make sure people don't get left behind without hindering the progress of the human race as a whole too much. We have to find that sweet spot. 
we have to. I understand what you mean when you say that accelerationists are taking it too far. I think that's absolutely true. You know, how Darwinian can you get and do you really want to get that Darwinian? <laughs> exactly. Because I'm sorry, I keep saying exactly. I just realized that, I, you know, be a little bit more mindful. No, that's okay. That. It, it, it makes me feel like I'm making good points, even if I'm not. Oh, yeah, dude, you're, you're right on the nose there. Thank you. You're killing it, man. Thanks. Nice, nice speaking skills. Good vocabulary, man. This is fun. Appreciate it. I, I'm really glad that this uh, the first episode seems to be going pretty smoothly. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. So where were we? We were talking about accelerationists. Accelerationists. Um, oh, and the, uh, the Darwinism and like, do you want to be that Darwinistic? And I was going to say that like, that is, it's really interesting because social Darwinism and just Darwinism in general, like, um, just between societies, it's so, there's such a disparity between the Western world's um, Darwinism and hell, even just the developed world in general, Darwinism versus underdeveloped countries or countries that are just at war right now. And that's all they can think about because like here in the United States, um, social Darwinism is who can climb the corporate ladder fast enough who can get the highest paying entry level job before the fight for 15 may or may not, you know, erase them all. And mm-hmm. in somewhere like, I don't know, Syria or a small African village being controlled by warlords, social Darwinism is who can find the clean stream and direct everyone else to it and be viewed as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Or who's, who's going to die. Yes. <laughs> who's actually going to die. Exactly. Who is literally going to lose their life today? Do you think that the fact that do you think that the accelerationist movement and people who are are really like uh, Americans, especially, but maybe even in Western Europe, people who uh, are who romanticize free market capitalism and romanticize social Darwinism or Darwinism in general, um, are just craving that because of how cushiony our world has become. How, if I just lay in bed for a week, I'm probably not going to die. It's, it's more than likely. And part of it, I think also is sort of fueled by this, this fantasy that if that comes to pass, they will without a doubt rise to the top. I mean, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's um, trying to think about it. It's represented well in a lot of, you know, like little mobile games nowadays where you, you play as uh, Kim Kardashian or you play, you know, Lemonade Stand Tycoon or whatever. And yeah, you, uh, right. Economic games or, or clout-based games, essentially. Exactly. So you, you have this, uh, this perfect sanitary orchestrated simulation of what would happen if social Darwinism was taken to the extreme in a vacuum. And in this case, sure. you're the main character of the game. So obviously you win and people want that winning in real life. So people want to think that, Oh, if it's every man, every man fends, fends for himself, I'll win. People want to think that, Oh, if society devolves into anarchy, I have some sort of edge that'll put me on top. If, if, do you think that's one of the things that fascinates us about the apocalypse right now culturally? Because there's the huge phenomenon of like zombie movies, apocalypse scenarios, preppers and everything. You think a lot of that is just wanting to have that edge and feel like you're superior in some hypothetical sense? Yeah, because society right now, there's so much equality and that's a good thing. There's so much, there's mm-hmm. such a distinct, almost dropped some stuff. There's such a distinct lack of strife and struggle like for survival in a very basic sense in today's society. So people like preppers, for example, will 
they will uh, cope ahead for having this struggle in the anticipation and for some of them, even the hope that it will come to pass because it harkens back to that more sort of primal root of like me grug, me have more meat, me live through winter. Yeah. I think, I think that when it comes to doomsday preppers, this might be a little, a little radical of me to say, but I think that, that group in particular is often filling a kind of religious void or at least adhering to mythological roots that they don't know are there um, in the sense that our world and also chaos theory, also adhering to aspects of chaos theory in the sense that our world has become too orderly. Eventually it will decay. It's probably going to collapse all at once because of the commonality of exponential patterns and social situations like this. Um, You know, the Roman empire doesn't like slowly, slowly crumble, at least not in a way that they could observe. The same can be said for Egypt and the same will probably be said for us. If we fall, it's going to happen quickly. Um, So they romanticize that. And that comes right back to the idea of, uh, of, of, of revelation, of, of society being completely destroyed, of people being essentially raised from the dead because they'll be assuming new identities in this apocalyptic scenario. They won't be themselves anymore. They'll put on their gear. They'll grab their bags. They'll go out and they'll be, they'll be entirely new people with entirely new lives. It's a kind of resurrection. Um, and they'll be living in a new world and it won't be a heavenly paradise. Like one would think with something like Zion, right? Instead, it's the opposite. It's, it's the in-between it's accepting. It's not, it's not, it's not the acceptance of of hell. It's the acceptance of an alternative. It's, it's saying that we will live in the in-between. We will live where it's rough. We will live where it's rugged and where people die and where people have to fight for their food. Um, because we're just so numb in this society. I think that that's, subconsciously what a lot of them are saying and many of them are saying it consciously i i couldn't agree more i don't really know where to take that i i detected a little bit of a beat in the conversation that suggested you know my turn i i just i really like um i really like the point that you've made there and i think that um you know you are definitely a lot more religious than i i don't believe in anything and I'll, I'll admit, you know, full disclosure, I would like to, I would really, it would bring me comfort to be like, oh, there's God or Allah or Buddha or any number of anything, you know, all the way back to the Egyptian gods. I don't care what religion it would be. I believe that there's a degree of comfort and purpose to be found there, um, along with, you know, the limitations that come with it of, you know, yeah. like, I can't be this, I can't do that, I can't go around just fucking killing people, because then I'll go to hell. But, um, yeah, for, for all of our viewers who have, or listeners, I suppose, who have no idea who I am whatsoever, yeah, I am, I'm an atheist, I'm not a militant atheist, I love meeting religious people, I think it's an awesome thing, religion. So I, I don't know that I 100% agree that it's filling a religious sure. void, and I, I don't time. know if I would describe it that way even. I think it's like you can fill a religious – you can say religious void without meaning like literally in a spiritual sense. I think I mean more in a cultural sense. Mm, something to devote themselves to. Right. Yeah. I mean I, I'm, I'm just trying not to take history, history for granted. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to – I didn't mean to push you into a corner where you felt like you had to explain your views on something like that. That's, that's No, it gave me a good opportunity. That's, I was, sure. I was ab- absolutely. With that. 
Yeah. Awesome. No, that was, that was great. I just, I just didn't want to make you feel, feel, uh, feel weird about it because I wasn't trying to take the conversation in any kind of like spiritual direction or anything. I just wanted to address that side of it because I think that's a, that's definitely a really real thing. Anytime yeah. someone is romanticizing something, they're trying to fill some kind of void. Yeah. And you know, it, it actually, I mean, it would make sense in a way because it seems like now I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've read some studies about this, but that is really off the cuff. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, go take this to the bank you take it for granted. But um, from what I understand, Americans as a whole are becoming more secular. And if mm-hmm. not, they're, they're not losing their spirituality so much as they're just not, they're not going to church. They're not subscribing to a particular religion. Um, and so that devotion and that idea of like, this is my overall routine that I follow. This is my plan that exists for me my whole for my life like it it doesn't have to be down to the second but it it is there and people like preppers or people who are just people who have obsessed themselves with one thing and maybe not obsessed in a a bad way but just that's that's the word that i would use to describe it are feeling that they're 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 putting that in that niche that perhaps in the past society would have said religion's got to go there um, or, you know, whatever's got to go there. And, and now they're saying, well, this is what I'm going to put. Or there. nationalism has to go there. Oof, nationalism is, uh, that's a big oof for me. It is a big oof. It's a big oof for me too. But I think that um, that was the case for a lot of Americans probably in the 1900s or 18, not so much in the 1800s, but definitely in the 1900s. And at least in the, like near the midnight, near the mid like like around the 50s right or even before that in world war ii and world war one maybe that's something that was filling a void in the world war ii um whole era i had to do uh, a lot of social sciences projects on this it was the people were hella nationalistic i mean you basically america did a fair amount of regression in terms of race relations i mean we all i hope we all know about the uh the internment camps that Japanese Americans were placed in and the like. And there was this, there was this fervor of like devoting yourself to the nation. There was, you know, everything from, from cereal boxes to cartoons, to comics, to just like nationally renowned books and television. Everything was, you know, make sure to buy bonds to support the war effort. Make sure to grow your own food. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, do you think, Go ahead. I was just going to I was going to conclude the sentence with um and I I think that gave people something to devote their daily lives to. Mm. Do you think that if we were to see war, it doesn't have to be on the same scale as World War 1 or World War 2, but especially not World War 2, right? But if we were to see a kind of large-scale war involving the US today, one that was a little bit more hands-on than what's going on in the Middle East, um that that nationalistic attitude would rise again? Or I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think so. Um, but I, want you, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I don't even know if it could be enforced. I, I disagree alongside you. Uh, I think, um, you know, I mean, even just looking at um, the growing movement of, of people who tweet things like Not My President or the anti-fascist movement, people are no longer kind of feeling obligated to support the government just because it's the government that they live yeah. under. And, you know, in a sense, I think that's pretty cool because we have a vote for a reason. We're a democracy for a reason. We don't have to just like kowtow to uh, 
to whatever the government is and say, well, it's not my favorite, but it's what I live under and there's nothing I can do. There is something you can do. You can vote. And, uh, and so I, I think that, you know, going back to what we were actually talking about, um, would people devote themselves to the war? Would that fill a religious-esque niche in their minds and hearts and et cetera, et cetera? I think for a fair few people it would. And for a fair few people, it would, it would fill that niche for them to protest it, like uh, like a yeah. lot of people did during the uh, Vietnam conflict, because America didn't acknowledge that as an official war. But you know, we did have people there right. anyway. Um, I, I think a lot of that too is just the result of us becoming less sedentary as individuals, becoming more like we are able to travel for like less cost than any generation before us, and you can say that of almost every generation and their predecessor. Um, but it's so it's so absurd. It rings so absurdly true right now because of how fast technology is advancing. You know, it's not that hard to leave the country. Yeah, and it's 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 even easier to um, to travel via the internet. Uh, which obviously is not nearly the same, but you know, but it provides yeah, an even more, most of our parents. I feel like didn't really have this unless they had pen pals. But you can make a friend on one of the many online communities, and you can Skype with them, and suddenly, a part of your consciousness is in a country that is thousands of miles away, overseas, maybe around the globe, and just like you said as well, you know, plane travel, train travel all of these methods of travel are becoming more efficient, less expensive, faster. And so with the advent of all of these things and the enhancement of those which have already existed, people are becoming perhaps not in the most full sense of the word, but people are becoming more worldly because people are mm-hmm. literally gaining experiences from around the world. You know, you go through Twitter and people are like, they are going through a, crisis in this village please retweet my brother in in you know xyz village in xyz place just designed a windmill to power his town here's this and so you know we we're seeing these little pieces of more personal life and so these countries are no longer just places that you memorize for a test or places that fill up the globe between america and the ocean they're real places with real people and People now more than ever are realizing that because, you know, back in the 40s, mm-hmm. I'm sure people had traveled. But when you say, you know, Japan bombed us and now we're going to war with them, people don't think like, oh, there's there's these people in Japan and there's what this city looks like. They think this is the home of the enemy and that's it. And so now if we were to go to war with somewhere like, I say, Africa, I really hope not. But if we were, people would re- say like, hey, I know this person, or I play World of Warcraft with this person, or my brother Skypes with this girl. Like, they're no longer just the nation that opposes us or stands with us. They're a nation made of people. Right. So there's this trend towards global empathy. And by, and by worldly, do you just mean globally conscious? Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes sense to me, absolutely. I think that I think that at this point, one of the keys, I don't want to say to human evolution, because I don't mean it in a biological sense. I mean it in a cultural and and maybe even synthetic sense. Um, The evolutionary path that we are choosing, that we are setting ourselves on, uh, ends with globalism in in, in a sense. It doesn't have to, it can be, that can go be good or bad, depending on how we want to define it. Um, I think that's very subjective, but um, 
the trend is empathy, right? We, we progressively, at least in the past several decades, um, because we are able to know one another better, faster, we're able to know each other more deeply. We're able to connect people all around the world um, and may, maybe not know each other more deeply, but feel like we do more, much more quickly than we would have, you know, even just 20, 30 years ago when I actually had to ask you what's your favorite, whatever was, instead of looking at your Facebook page and, and scrolling through your likes. So I think that, I think that's definitely true. I think that empathy is, is, is one of the main things. And I think we are becoming more globally conscious. And I think that that, I don't want to say that's the path to, to global peace. That's a, that's a grandiose statement, but it's definitely a step in the right direction as far as avoiding, uh, international conflict would you would you would you agree with yeah, that because ultimately a lot of why people are able to treat other people cruelly is by othering them um mm-hmm. you're you know like like people are the the amount of people who kill someone that's in their family or that they live with is drastically lower than the amount of people that kill someone that they don't live with and then someone that they don't know, and then someone that they've maybe never seen before, depending on what the situation is. And my, what my, what are the point I'm trying to make there is the less othered someone is to you, the more compassion you have towards them. And that's why, ideally, yeah, ideally um, I mean, even people that I know well that I dislike, I understand why i dislike them and i understand why they do the things that they do that i dislike better and so it makes even Mm -hmm. their motivations for doing things that harm me or that i personally disagree with it makes their motivations more transparent and so it's no it's not as black and white it's not as easy to say oh they're just wrong and so i think um you know like you said it's it's a little bit far-fetched to say that it'll bring about global peace but the the way forward is if not paved lined with empathy because we really have almost no choice i mean when i was when i was a lot younger before i got onto more social media platforms and i was more so invested in an echo chamber of the somewhat limited beliefs that i already held i had a lot of animosity towards people like um like feminists or gay people or hell, even fat people back when I was in uh, early middle school. Um, I genuinely, I had a lot of hatred to people that I felt othered towards. And that has been, that's changed drastically since then because I've gotten to know people better of these different beliefs slowly, but surely, and they've become less othered. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, I think that's an important, I mean, I think that that is part of growing up in the modern world, right? And I think that's why people, I, I had young people who feel um, like not attacked by their parents, but misunderstood by their parents who just don't understand how they can feel so, so strongly and so empathetically for these people all around the world who they've never met. And it's like, because we understand their experiences a little bit more, we understand that people really aren't that different fundamentally because we can all talk to each other. I think that this also is telling, um, this is just something that I, that I thought of. I'm not sure if it's a decent discussion point. It might be a little bit of a a rabbit hole we can come to another time. Um, But I think this is also telling to the preferred complexity of stories and relationships in them. Whereas 
um, in the early 1900s or even in the, in the 80s, even you could say, um, people tended more towards. I think the 80s was probably one of the major periods of deconstruction of this idea for sure. But people tended more towards black and white, good and evil stories where you knew who the good guy was, you knew who the bad guy was, and you were rooting for the good guy, hoping the bad guy gets socked in the mouth, right? And now we have this obsession with anti-heroes or uh, post-heroes like, uh, like Logan, you know, um, and then the new God of War game that just came out. Don't um, spoil it for me. I haven't played it And I think part yet. of that is... We, we, I haven't played it yet either, but, but I know this is part of that trend um, that we, we crave more complex relationships with characters and more complex stories because for the first time in a long time, we're starting to understand that people are way more complex than that. I think the fact that what we're talking about as far as making other people less othered around the world uh, has a significant impact on how we tell our stories. We want to be able to feel something for every character. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And uh, when you started talking about that and about how the complexity of stories and the multi-layeredness of stories, not really an adjective, but you know what I mean. Um, sure. The, those aspects of stories have been um, growing over time. When you mentioned those and you mentioned the specific characteristics that you mentioned, I thought of the, um, a lot of the ancient Greek stories. I mean, Shakespeare to a degree, a lot of Shakespeare's stuff, you could kind of tell early on who was in the right and who was in the wrong. But in a lot of ancient Greek stories, the protagonist would do something just boneheaded and a lot of the times morally in the gray, if not wrong, and sometimes reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much always explained by hubris, which is the the fatal pride of that character that they just believe that whatever they think is right. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from that. And I think that there's a lot that's being learned from that because like you said, society is turning back towards more complex stories. Um, people, when they see that as this person that I'm rooting for, this person that's technically in the right by the definition of the story, or at least is the one that I'm supposed to feel is most in the right, they think they, they thought something and they were convicted and they were wrong. And now it's not, it's not a bad guy thing to be wrong. And so people mm -hmm. are more okay with reevaluating their beliefs. They think, well, if, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a good example you know, if, if, if Deadpool can decide, oh, I don't care about um, this kid in the new Deadpool movie and then realize, hey, maybe I should have. Or if, um, you know, if Logan can think, oh, I, I can't let people in or they'll get killed and then he's proven wrong, then it, it makes us less afraid to think, well, what if I'm wrong about whatever belief that I'm really strongly right. convicted in? Because I, I think it's the go ahead. I was just going to finish that up with uh, because it's not a bad guy thing to be wrong anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that that is the manifestation uh, culturally of the ideas of the scientific revolution, right? The fact acceptance of ignorance, it's not, not in the sense that we don't want to improve, but accepting that we probably know very little about the world and about ourselves and that we're going to be wrong most of the time. I think that, the, you know, I think after the scientific revolution, we started to see that a little bit culturally, but it's really sped up in the past uh, few decades. 
I, I also think that um, potentially, and this is just an idea, but potentially um, the same comfort, uh, the same sense that everything is okay, or at least fairly cushiony and soft and, and fluffy and nice, um, that produces these accelerationists, these hyper free market capitalists, and, and, and even doomsday preppers who are craving a world of strife and, and competition and potentially bloodshed. Um, the same softness, the same comfort that produces that is the comfort zone that is allowing us to have these conversations, that's allowing us to be more empathetic with each other and to connect with each other in new ways and also to tell more complex stories. Because when you think we brought up the Greeks, um, when, when, the, when the Greeks, when Greek mythology became that complex, I mean, it was always very complex, but when you started having these heroes who were faulted in, in, in incredible ways and who were morally reprehensible, not just from the beginning, if you look at like early occidental mythology in general, you have many heroes who are flawed from the beginning who had some kind of curse from whatever their god was, but now it's like these are very real people. Um, they, they constructed these ideas in a time of what would have been considered com comfort at that, in that era. Right. So, which is almost a scary thought. I'm not sa I'm not using that to say like, oh, this is peak America, man. There's we can't get any better than this. It's all downhill from here. But I think it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, just wow, to kind of just kind of there. to kind of bring that around. Yeah, it's uh, it's it. There's a lot of parallels to be found between ancient Greece and us, and you know, a lot of ancient and Rome for sure, and where we're at. But I also think that it's interesting looking at comparatively looking at the time frame of those empires and those um, societies versus our own, because so it's pretty easy to forget given our technological and economic stance in the world that America is a mm -hmm. really young nation. America is one of Absolutely. the youngest nations that there is. And, uh, and so it's kind of interesting because in a sense, it's, it's pretty experimental in as much as, all of these other nations have had so much more time to solidify and to kind of have a, a, a cultural background emerge. I, and we've caught up to them and in some cases even surpassed them technologically. Mm -hmm. And where are we like, what, what is that going to look like culturally when our culture is still developing with such a different level of technology? I, I don't know that I, I agree with the latter part of what you said, but I don't know that I that that the that the first part is, in, in my opinion, um, completely rational. Only because um, I hear the argument a lot that America is so young and that makes it an experiment still. Um, but uh, I I don't know how to word this without sounding like a hippie, without just saying, "Oh, everything's speeding up, man." But it's that. If I were to, you know, the railroads haven't been around as long as America has been around. Would you call the railroads an experiment? No. But are they, are they as complex as America? Absolutely not. But I think saying it's an experiment is, is taking the accomplishments we've made so far for granted. I mean, the global economy is centered almost entirely around the American consumer. And that's, in, that's incredible. The fact that America has been able to do as much as it has since its founding is, is remarkable. And whatever next global empire... Uh, there is, if there's another one, um, we'll probably move at an even faster pace than America has. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I want to clarify because I realized based on your, uh, your response there, I, I think that I either said the wrong thing or that I was just misconstrued there. 
when I say America, I may have just when I say America is an experiment, I mean more so that there is a lot to be uh, to be learned and noted from America and her development as a nation. Um, it's not so much a like, okay. oh, it'll it'll pass or it'll fail. You know, it, it's it's just a it's just a little thing, man. It's just gonna see what it's like. Just more so like this is a very a very unique set of circumstances for mm-hmm. a fully developed society to arise under. And so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out versus something like, uh, you know, Britain or uh, Italy or China. I mean, China has such a long and storied history and here they are today. And then here comes America. And so it's just, it's going to be interesting to see which parallels are drawn and then which parts of history run perpendicular to each other. Yeah, I agree. And I think I agree with the idea of America as an experiment in the sense that there is a lot to learn from it. I I have heard that used in the past just to discredit uh, almost not to discredit America's existence, but to discredit its, I guess, reputation or or its quote unquote greatness. Although that's a very subjective thing, but I think you know what I mean. Um, So thank you for clarifying. I appreciate that. And I think that you're definitely on the right track there. So to kind of bring things uh, back a couple of steps if, you, if you're okay with that yeah yeah let's do it um we we've talked about i'm, I'm just following the format that, that you laid out at the beginning where you wanted to talk about uh prevalent philosophical trends and then kind of uh compare them and, and, com- and compare and contrast how much we see them what their impact has been so far what their impact might be in the future um we've talked about hedonism we've talked about this uh, global consciousness this increase in empathy which i don't know how to describe but is definitely a philosophical trend because of the impact it's had on our culture um, and on our identities. Really, uh, we feel very, I think people feel a lot smaller today than maybe they did 40 years ago. Um, what are some other, I mean, I have some in mind, but, but what are some other trends you can think of philosophically that are influencing or could potentially influence uh, Western culture within the next few decades? And so we can, so we can kind of have more of a comprehensive list to compare. Um, well, I mean, pretty basically, excuse me, voice bottomed out there like my car. It's um, okay. Basically, skepticism in a very, um, mm. in a very, I don't know how to describe it, in a very simple way is, is, is coming back into play here. And I, I think for the most part, it's just been progressively on the rise ever since uh, the scientific revolution, ever since people have been like, well, wait a second. There's not humors and miasmas. It's it's all it's science and it's germs and it's this and it's that and we're always learning. Um, so I think I think skepticism is on the rise, and so it'll be interesting to see where that leads us. Especially because um, I, I believe I mentioned earlier, a lot more kids um, and, and people in general are going into STEM fields: science, technology, engineering, and math, mm-hmm. and um, you know, if you couple that with the healthy skepticism that society seems to be exhibiting, you know, the increase in, uh, in secularism, the increase in interest in science, it'll be interesting to see, will our, um, thinking of a good way to put this, will our collection of knowledge as a society increase exponentially as we realize, A, we have more to be skeptical about, and B, 
we have new ways to find the answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. I think pragmatic skepticism is, I don't like saying objectively good, but I would say it's pretty much as close as you get to objective good um, is pragmatic skepticism, right? In pursuit of progress and pursuit of a better world for our children and for all of us. I think that for the past few decades, at least in America, we've kind of taken for granted the idea of our kids growing up in a better world than we grew up in, because it's just kind of quote unquote happened over the course of the past several years. Um, but I think we might see the deconstruction of that soon. So the fact that so many kids today are going into STEM are have a generally skeptical and pragmatic attitude and outlook of the world is very encouraging to me uh, in that they will actively, hopefully, right, if they're not nihilistic about it, um, will hopefully be pursuing um, a better world for, for the next generation. I think that that's going to be very important. I think that this is interesting because there have been entire movements based on this in the past, but this is an entirely new group of people with an entirely new attitude. It's very pragmatic. It's very scientific. In the past, things like movements like this have been uh, philosophical. They've been religious. They've been bloody. This is all about progress. This is all about uh, making things more convenient in the next five minutes. And then hopefully that will add up to a better world in the next five years. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I've been, um, I don't know if you can hear the little clicks in the background, but I've been pulling up mm -hmm. um, a little essay that I wrote on relativism because I think that's another um, that's another important direction that society's going in that we need to look at. Um, Absolutely. So, I th this is like a three paragraphs, so I don't I don't intend on reading the whole thing, but relativism in essence, in, in cut to the very core, relativism is the idea that each view exists solely in relation to another view. Um, and thus, it argues that universal truth is non-existent. And the reason that I bring this up is because um, an ex-girlfriend of mine who went to college before I did, she was a year ahead of me. Um, I was a senior in high school and, uh, and she had gone off to college. And we were talking one night and she... Um, she mentioned that there's this, I forget exactly what the, uh, what the term for it is, but viewing everything through the lens of your own culture. And I was, I was pretty floored, and I'll admit that I don't buy into this 100%. And at the same time, I also do see that a lot of people are slowly buying into this um, with regard to different things. But um, she said... Um, there was some practice that I thought to my, there, it was a cultural practice. They like sent young boys into the woods with uh, predatory animals or something. And yeah, they, when was they, this? They, um, it's in a, it's in a native American practice. So I, I it's probably okay. not in practice anymore just because sure. we've destroyed most of that. But um, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of writing about it and there are people still alive mm -hmm. who, uh, have seen that firsthand or have partaken in that. Um, so the, the point being, they were doing something that was part of their culture that I viewed as morally reprehensible. And I was convinced that it is objectively a bad thing to do. And already you can see my error there because objective bad and objective good are pretty hard to discern, at least by us. Mm -hmm. Um, and she said, no, you're, you're viewing it through your own cultural lens. If you look at it relatively, 
it made them in the eyes of their society better people and they felt better about themselves afterwards and it almost never killed them and kids in the united states a lot of the time will you know go out and buy a pack of cigarettes on their 18th birthday or something and and those have carcinogens in them so in a That's very a deadly ceremony yeah yeah in a very semantic way they're both deadly it's ceremonies. very passive yeah it's much more passive than uh being released into the forest with a panther and saying cut off its ear and bring it back Right, but arguably less productive. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so we have that, and we think about that, and the fact that a lot of people are thinking more along those lines of relativism. And uh, I think the example that was posited to me that was a very like simple way of of saying things was if in a culture on planet X Y Z, it's exactly the same as ours, except that there is there exists a society that their cultural uh, coming of age ritual is just eating trash, just eat some trash. And it doesn't hurt me and it doesn't hurt anyone else except the people eating the trash. And I would say, you know, that's, that's bad. Don't do that. But relatively it's not bad. Relatively it's good for them because that's what they want to be doing. And, and I think that tying it back when we look to um, moral relativism as applied to hot topic here uh gay people and transgender people and people in that community there um there's there's been a lot of moral relativism going on because a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are um religious fanatics or people who are just otherwise um very strongly convicted in their views i hesitate to use the word bigot even though that's the word that i want to use i just want to keep you can use you can use it i wanted to keep the forum open if I, I believe they're mm-hmm. bigots, and if you are someone who shares those beliefs um, and doesn't classify yourself as a bigot, I'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to have a discussion about where those ideas come from. But back yeah, to the main... I think it's better to come out and say that than to beat around the bush, you know? Yeah, you know, that that's a good point. But um, back to the main point, people are no longer of that mindset that the Bible says a man shall not lie with another man lest he be stoned. So I have to go out and scream at all the gay people until they decide that they want to go back into the closet. Um, Or like transgender people are against God. So I have to scream at them until I don't know what the objective is there. But um, (laughs) the the point being people don't think that way anymore. They think, well, relatively it doesn't hurt me and it makes them happy and it's who they truly are. So it's, it's good for them to do that. And I think that that's a really, oof, this was a long winded way of saying this. I think it's a really, um, it's gaining a lot of steam in our culture today. Relativism. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And I think that um, this, this is something that's been happening progressively over the past several decades, but especially uh, in the past few, as we've become, like we talked about earlier, more globally conscious, more empathetic to struggles around the world. Um, so we're more like, I'm less apt to, to be, you know, disgusted by the fact that by the whole Chinese dog festival thing, I don't want to talk too much about that because I'm going to make a fool of myself because I know almost nothing about it. We all and know I don't the want general to see like an angsty though, Facebook poster. We all know the general idea, right? Um, First of all, if I have the opportunity, I leave for China in 10 days. If I have the opportunity to eat some dog guilt-free, I'm going to. Um, But that's part of, I guess that's a little bit of cultural relativism in my soul, right? But I think the idea 
um, for the past several decades, even as cultural relativism has been on the rise, has been to say, you can do that, but do it far away from me. Don't do it too close to me because it makes me uncomfortable. Now, uh, with the rise of the LGBTQ movement in America, not the rise of the movement, that makes it sound very militant, but um, the increase in publicity, media attention, and uh, this, the increased movement towards um, gay rights, which led to the legalization of gay marriage, um, the increased social acceptance of, of trans people, which I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm saying they are things that have happened. Um, I think that it's kind of an inside out uh, attempt at relativism. Instead of saying, you can do this, but don't do it close to me. It's, you can do this, I guess. And there's no way, there's no way for you to do it away from me because these are people ingrained in our society. And I think that's where people are getting uncomfortable. And I'm not justifying that. I'm saying that's an observation is that um, we were okay. We were on a good trajectory with cultural relativism, I guess, um, for the past several decades uh, by just accepting that people had their own lives in what they were basically different worlds as far as our perception goes. Right. Um, but now it's like individuality it ha has been pushed to the point that um, you probably don't agree with uh, anyone in your community on almost anything uh, entirely, which is good. That's part of being uh, an informed citizen in the modern age is, is having polarizing opinions and being okay with that. Um, but I think that to, to, to kind of segue into what I think is another rising uh, philosophical trend, I think that this breeds some form of nihilism in a lot of people, just the idea that, well, nobody really knows what's right. We're all going to argue about it. Let's not talk about any of it. Instead, let's talk about what I just bought. And hedonism plays into this too. Let's talk about what I'm going to do this summer. Let's talk about uh, this celebrity or that celebrity that we all know and love. Let's not talk about our ideas because we're just going to argue about them um, because we're so individualized. Uh, we're, we're, we're relativists at the point that we don't care. We're apathetic to one another's views. And I think that that is a form of nihilism. I also think that nihilism in general, just apathy on a national scale and maybe on a global scale in the developed world is on the rise also as a result of the um, comfort level we currently live in, but that's also breeding the accelerationist that's breeding the transformation of complexities of stories or the increase in complexity of stories, excuse me, and of characters. Um, I think is breeding a whole new form of nihilism, but I also am not sure if nihilism is sustainable at all. I, I, it doesn't inspire anything. I don't think it is. Uh, a society that says there's no point in doing anything because we're all just going to die doesn't leave anything for the next wave of people who aren't dead to build off of. Like, if I just say, well, I, there's no point in me doing anything because I'm going to die, and I live here in my parents' house until I'm dead, I have accomplished nothing. My genes have not been prolonged. My family doesn't mm -hmm. live on through me. Um, and it's, it's not going to change that I will die if I go out and have children or move out or do other things that are accomplishments. Um, you know, if you zoom out far enough, it's meaningless. If you zoom out far enough, the heat death of the universe is meaningless. But that doesn't mean right. that we shouldn't do things. Um, you know, a really simple example, I'm going to get thirsty no matter what. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't drink now. And so I believe in, 
I agree with your original statement that um, nihilism is, is very dangerous to society. Um, and I personally subscribe to a sort of cheerful or empathetic nihilism, which is to say nothing that I do matters. So why not try and do something that makes me and other people happy? If it doesn't matter whether I succeed or fail, why not at least try to succeed? Right. Or makes your life and the lives of those around you ob- objectively better. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think happy, I think people don't always know what's good for them. But um, I understand what, you, what you're saying. And, I, and I, I think that's a good place to be. I think that's the... I think that that might be the only route of redemption for for a lot of uh, young young men and women today is to if you've reached the point where where you believe nothing matters, you know, and there that's a hard thing to come back from, right? And if you can't come back from that, then the best thing to do is accept it because it may very well be true, um, and then build on that, and then say, you know what, I'm going to do this anyways. I'm going to rebel against death, essentially. Um, and not even that, I'm not going to rebel against death, but I'm going to rebel against uh, the bleakness of, of the human condition. Yeah. And, um, you know, here is a, that's a, that's a topic on which I can talk, um, perhaps not from the most educated viewpoint, but from a very experienced one, I can talk at length because um, I have, I have depression and I've tried to kill myself quite a few times. And um, I, I'm pretty sure that that's the end of that. But, you know, time will tell. Mm-hmm. But my, my point is, um, there's, I think there's a key difference that I didn't realize before, that nothing matters is different from you don't matter. Um, mm-hmm. the, in the grand scheme of things, which is just a very cliched to death phrase, but nothing matters at all. It doesn't matter, um, you know, it, just nothing. And, but that's not to say that, A, it's not to say that other people don't believe that. And B, it's not to say that, I, I don't know how to put this. You can positively impact other people's lives and you can do things that will make you happy and healthy and wise, hopefully, and really, really hopefully, although there's a slim chance, wealthy. And those things won't matter. And that's okay. It's okay that they don't matter because it's, it's what's in your life. And it's okay if, you know, oh, I did this nice thing or I'm happy now, but I'm not going to be happy later or uh, I'm not going to be happy when I'm dead. That's okay. It, mm. It's it's very hard to uh, to just vocalize straight up just emotions that you feel and conclusions that you've come to after a few years, but um, in essence, I think you're doing a I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. In essence, um, to tie it all up as neatly as possible, um, you can accept that nothing matters, and at the same time, you can accept that that fact that doesn't matter either because who's going to be people, people seem to operate under the assumption that because nothing matters, their disembodied spirit is going to float looking at all the good things they've done, just wash away and go, damn, wish I didn't do that. Wish I didn't waste my time doing that. That's not how it works. It's not. Oh, you're cutting out. Let me know when I'm good. 
Cool. They're good. Um, disembodied spirit watching everything happen. I'm glad I didn't do that. I'm glad I, or I'm glad I wasted yeah. my time on that. So that's not what's going to happen. The, the fact that that's nothing we matters doesn't matter. Just do it. Just do mm-hmm. it. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think that um, it's such a silly thing to say, too, to use nothing matters as an excuse to do nothing. Because nothing matters to who? Certainly there are things that matter to you. Certainly there are things that matter to your community and to people that you care about. That's sub- saying that it's subjective, that meaning is subjective doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Saying something is internal rather than external isn't saying it's non-existent. Yeah, that's... You know, and I, I think that that ties pretty closely in, into something else I wanted to bring up. If you're okay with yeah, transitioning a little bit, I appreciate you opening up so much when it comes to nihilism and kind of what keeps you motivated. That was really cool, and I hope our I hope our listeners find some serious value in that. But I wanted to transition a little bit to existentialism. Which are, are you familiar with existentialism um, in general? Not particularly very vaguely so if you want to go over your knowledge that would also help contextualize it for the listeners sure absolutely yeah i was going i was going to want to anyways if that way they could kind of get a feel for it but um existentialism is and hmm, i don't want to put my foot in my mouth here because it's i don't have comprehensive knowledge of of the field i just know that it's on the rise it's the idea that uh existence is pain and, and life is bad. It, it, it ties very closely to nihilism and relativism, but I think it's almost a more destructive nihilism when it's held by the right person or rather the wrong person. Um, the idea that life uh, is objectively bad. That's, that's, that's what a lot of it comes down to. Or, or existence is meaningless or existence is entirely subjective. These are a lot of uh, statements that can come out of existentialism. Um, ex- life is bad is one of these statements, not the key point of the belief, but it's one that it's the most dangerous conclusion i would say i i'm trying to stop myself from laughing because that's it's a really laughable viewpoint to me um it is but it's concerning that 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 this is like i mean i mean you know i i when i when i first started getting into philosophy at all i was just watching like wisecrack videos on youtube and crash course stuff and existentialism is a is a popular theme i would say in uh, media right now in in certain television shows and movies um like okay great example cringy cringy example a great example rick and morty is is a fantastic example of this um but i don't think it's it's i don't think existentialism has been adopted by many people uh and if it has these people are not very open about it because it is such uh an objectively negative and uninspiring uh philosophy yeah and uh it it just seems so silly to me um to say just as soon as you as soon as you mentioned that they say that ob- existence is subjective it's so silly to say existence is objectively subjective like your <laughs> your your opinion right of it being objectively subjective is subjective to you i i think it's really right I don't know that that one is that one is hard for me. That seems to be it, it, it's it's hard for me too. It's hard to relate to. Um, I think uh, maybe a better example socially or culturally that kind of comes to mind is people who will argue uh, co- constantly or consistently um, that people are essentially a plague on the earth 
and people are like a cancer, people are like a virus, which is this is something I used to say just because I wanted to be edgy. People are like a virus, right? The way that we spread and everything. Um, the fact that we don't have a niche, we just kind of spread all over the world and mess things up, which is a very zero-sum zero fallacy perspective of, of the world and of human progress. Um, but uh, I think that that's definitely rooted in existentialism, the idea that humans are a plague or, or just the casual statement of people are gross. I don't like people. That's rooted in existentialism, even if it's some kind of psychological disorder or it's some kind of just personality trait. You could trace it back to existentialism. So that, mm-hmm. I think those are kind of the more um, the more applicable aspects are, or people who believe like, like hardcore environmentalists who would just rather there not be people so the world could just be at peace yeah that's those are less uh sort of straw manny than what i presented so i i appreciate those um those are it's interesting because they're based on very subjective opinions and i feel like a lot of existentialism based on the limited knowledge that I have now seems to be very emotionally based. Um, People are bad because I think they mess everything up. People are bad because I think that they're dumb or I think that people are evilly, people are just, you know, born evil. And that's a lot of, it's not so much fact-based as experience-based. And while experience is important and experience is an excellent teacher, facts are much more um they provide a much more accurate picture of life existence Mm -hmm. and the meaning therein as a whole and so existentialism seems to me to be sort of um sort of a a springboard into other things and i think existentialism is important and while I wouldn't encourage anyone to switch from whatever school of thought they're in or just straight up adopt existentialism, I think that it holds an important place in our society because it gets you, it gets you going and it's a passionate viewpoint to have. It's not just meh, things happen and they happen and here I am. Existentialism is very passionate. And so it at Mm -hmm. the very least it gives you something to cling to and hopefully that can push you in a more positive yeah. direction. It's better than having nothing. It's, 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 you know, maybe you will slowly realize that, Oh, maybe life isn't bad. And maybe reality isn't subjective because here I am with this strong belief and, and what might that mean for, for my life, my being, my existence and my mind or my soul. And what might it mean for the world that I am able to have such a convicting belief, despite the fact that I think everything is yeah, subjective or hell, even if you, throughout the years are proven right because so far we're operating on go out into the world and are proven wrong let's say you are everything that you can that you say you can back up um intellectually and logically then you're helping philosophy you're helping humanity because you are disseminating knowledge and forcing people to think differently than they currently are so how whatever kind of spin Mm -hmm. you put on it whatever future an existentialist has they're helping something yeah i i would say so too and that's why i think it's one of the major trends at least one of the important ones that's worth talking about i think that at first it is easy to to write it off but it's definitely it's an unspoken philosophical trend people don't go around saying well i'm an existentialist very often yeah or 
but it's they they manifest yeah. it. Or instead. if they do, they're not the kind of people that you really want to be talking to. Yeah, probably probably not. Um, so so far, we've talked about hedonism, nihilism, existentialism, and uh, this kind of increase in empathy, this this global consciousness. Um, we talked a little bit about nomadicism, but I think that's more of a cultural progression than a philosophical trend. Um, I think it's one that leads to. I think it's, it leads to certain philosophical trends for sure. Um, I, I think I think we're in a good place to start to start comparing and contrasting and to start. Uh, kind of voyaging out into new territory. Would you say the same, or do you think there's maybe a component that we're I missing? I think we are. I think we're ready. I say accelerate, my friend. <laughs> I'll be the accelerationist. Um, so, k- kind of what I, what I think. I think this is definitely these. These are what's what are prevalent in the West. The, this is what the the progression of developed Western. Um, developed Western cultures uh, is, is looking, is going to look like in the, in the future. I think that we've already talked about how nihilism isn't sustainable. Um, and I think nihilism and existentialism tend to go hand in hand, but existentialism does have hope as you pointed out, something that I hadn't thought of in, in the past very much. Um, I think global, the global consciousness is, is definitely on the rise. I think hedonism is on the rise, but I also we, we had talked a little bit about it. it might just seem that way, um, but we're at least a lot more open about it now, which is, is good and bad in terms of how we relate to one another and how we think of other people. Um, I do wonder if hedonism is in a similar place with nihilism where it, it just is not uh, sustainable or is only sustainable to a point. I would say it's pretty much the same um, because the only way that hedonism is sustainable is to say this gives me sensory pleasure or mental pleasure or whatever, how do I ensure that future generations have this same mental pleasure? But then the hedonistic hedonistic aspects of that train of thought begin to decay and you get more and more selfless and more and more about someone besides yourself and how you can make things more pleasant for them or for, you know, them collective. Um, and... I, I feel and, like, and you just ahead. you keep you, you, your your own consequential consequentially devoid um, self pleasuring actions take a backseat to helping someone else. I think though, if we define hedonism as the pursuit of happiness or of one own, one's own comfort and well being, um, well, I don't even, I wouldn't like to say well being because happiness often comes at the expense of well being. Um, I think. Hedonism and, and rampant hyper accelerationist uh, capitalism can can go hand in hand in some ways, depending on uh, what your idea of that might look like. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of accelerationists who are all about improving the state of the community and who have very progressive views in that area, culturally and socially, right, in the sense that they want uh, to speed up innovation to help the world. But I'm sure there are many, and I know many, many libertarians and classical liberals who would argue that selfishness is the key motivation into making the world a better place. That if I want to become extravagantly wealthy, my best bet is to create as much value as possible, to do as much good for the world as possible. And that will be the result of me, get, of me pursuing my, my own wealth, my own well-being, my own pleasure, my own, my own happiness. Um, but I think that that is, and, and you could also argue that it's in one's own best interest to, 
uh, protect and provide for their community because who wants to be alone? Who wants to isolate themselves in that way? So, but I, I think at that point, we're also loosening the definition of hedonism. I think when people think of hedonism, usually you think of immediate pleasure, happiness at the expense of everything else. You don't think about your own well-being. I think that might be something else entirely more like self-preservation. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Yeah, I think it is more of a, at that point, it's more of not only a self-preservation, but a, a sort of a cultural preservation. And just... Mm-hmm. Species preservation. Yeah, just an empathy for those who whom with you share uh, a planet, a culture, an identity, and a future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... That leaves existentialism and, and the increase in global consciousness and empathy. And I think those might be able to go hand in hand in an interesting way. I'm not sure if I can articulate that very well at the moment. Um, I don't want to ramble on and on trying to uh, fruitlessly. But um, maybe, maybe you have a, a similar idea of, of what that might look like as far as how you talk to – I think existentialism – Uh, pushed in the right direction can be similar to the cheerful nihilism that you had mentioned, the hopeful nihilism. And I think that that can be linked closely to uh, global consciousness in which, Hey, nothing matters in the grand scheme of things for any of us. So let's do all, let's all do good for each other. And I think you need empathy to have that mindset. Yeah. Um, So if you, if you couple cheerful nihilism with globalism and, uh, and that sort of sense of growing empathy that we'd mentioned before, that you'd really mentioned before, because you, you came up with that idea. I really admire that. Um, and uh, so if you, if you combine those, the sort of sentiment that comes out of it is um, the individual doesn't matter, but by prioritizing, if we prioritize the well-being and success and safety of those who will come after us, they in turn will prioritize those who come after them. And every generation will not only live in safety, success, and happiness, but they will also be living in a more advanced state of those three than the generation before them. And it, it just, uh, that sort of thinking begets progress that, um, you know, as an individual, what I do won't matter even in just like a hundred years, but as a society, what I can contribute will matter in a hundred years, uh, 200 years, maybe a thousand years. I think this is, I think this is this, this global consciousness, um, combined with cheerful nihilism might be something that we've been unconsciously working towards for the past couple centuries, at least the last century, uh, certainly, but maybe the past couple, um, at least in the developed world, although the developed world has grown in some areas and shrank in others over the course of those past 200 years, certainly the, the landscape has changed a lot. Um, but I think it's safe to say that that's what we've been working towards because tri- when you think about it, tribalism, uh, and nationalism and statehood and things like that, um, brotherhood even, are us making it halfway or part of the way there in the sense that we can provide for our community within a tribe or within a city or within a, within a nation. We can all be empathetic towards each other. But outside these borders, man, outside of these, these arbitrary lines, I have no feelings for these other people. And now, because of the internet, because of um, just... The, the ability to connect with people all over the globe, uh, this increase in empathy that we've been talking about again and again, 
um, we are able to relate to people more and we are able to empathize with them and, and crave their well-being and work towards that on a global scale. So I think that um, this isn't just some like hypothetical conclusion. I think that if, if things go well, and by go well, I mean stay on the trajectory that we're on, because I don't think it's a bad trajectory to be on. That's why I say go well. I know that's very subjective. Um, that we will reach that goal um, and in some form or another. It might not be in the way that we understand it or that we're discussing it today, but I think it's something that we've been unconsciously working towards for a long time. People are starting to become more conscious about it. We're having conversations about it like this one. We kind of know what's happening, and I hope that that won't discourage us. I hope that we won't become arrogant and assume that the next generation will have it better than the last just because we're talking about it. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make is uh... – between thinking and doing in essence um you can you can have great ideas you can mean well you can hell you can even be a good person but unless you have good praxis that's not reflected in the world and um if it's Mm -hmm. if it's all the same with you uh i know you're an hour behind me but conversely i'm an hour ahead of you it's 11 15 ish right now um and uh and I, I kind of would like to sign off and leave the listeners with that note that if you are a good person, which I believe it is easier to be more of a good person than more of a bad person, you can make a positive change even if you don't believe that you matter. If you do believe that you matter, that's awesome. Good. Keep doing that. But even if mm-hmm. you don't, you can make a positive change, have good practice, act on it, and going forward – you will be immortalized in that sense. Mm-hmm. And you can believe nothing matters without believing that you don't. Exactly. Matter. All right. This, this was a lot of fun. I feel like we've been able to have a very productive conversation. I'm glad episode one has gone well. Um, I would like to continue this conversation uh, next time we're able to do this, kind of stay on this topic for a bit longer. I think there are air, more areas to be explored. Um, but I, I think that this is definitely a good place to end it for now. Awesome. Um, again, thank you very much right. for having me on episode one. It's been an honor. Um, I've been, I've been Max Russell. Um, probably going to rebrand soon as my, my full name because I think it sounds a little bit more majestic. Maximilian, Maximilian Tompkins Russell. Maximilian Tompkins yep. Russell. And this has been Remember Joshua it. D. Knoll. The Joshua D. Knoll podcast. Amen. Hell yeah, brother man. I need a I need a better name for this thing than just slapping my name on everything. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> it's 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 at least at least it's semi memorable. Thank you guys for for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Um, check us out. If Max, are you going to have any social media links for me to put in the description? Uh, not yet. Okay. Well, if if Max gets on the internet like a big boy, <laughs> I'll, I'll put those links in the description for you guys. In the meantime, feel free to follow me everywhere at Jeshua D. Knoll. Check out jeshuadnoll.com for more resources, more interesting conversations and perspectives. Check out my latest book, Patterns and Peculiarities, a new book with new ideas in which I explore all kinds of interesting topics like this one uh, with you guys right there with me and um, hopefully we'll be able to have more productive and interesting conversations in the future. I think this has gone great and I look forward to doing this again. Thank you for coming on Max and thank you guys for listening.